This is episode number 295 with Tim West of the Founder Podcast. What you need is thirst. You need to be a thirsty human. Who is intent on learning. It's a really fascinating, fascinating exploration of human potential. Now. 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 The Founder Podcast. Even the greatest entrepreneurs had help. If you want to learn from the most successful founders on the planet, you are in the right place. Branson, Mark Cuban, Tony Robbins, Tim Ferriss, Ariana Huffington, Seth Ghost, Steve Case, Gary V, Sophia Amoroso, Barbara Corcoran, Damon John. Learn from the greatest minds in business today with interviews hosted by Nathan Chan. This is not your average entrepreneur podcast. The Founder Podcast. Hey guys, thank you so much for tuning in. Before we start today's episode, I just want to let you know that our goal at Founder is to help entrepreneurs succeed however we can by giving away high quality content in the form of interviews, blog posts, podcasts, YouTube videos, you name it. We put out so much content to help you. And another interesting project that we're working on right now is partnering with world-class founders like Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills like negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free trainings with founders like this, which is 100% free, just go to founder.com forward slash free. Okay, so now let's talk about today's episode. What's going on, Founder Fam? Nathan Chan here, CEO and publisher of Founder Magazine, and welcome to the Founder Podcast. Now, I know everybody that is listening right now, the world has changed, things have really changed, and I just wanted to let you know we're here to help and support however we can. We're working very, very hard to create kind of like a new content series to speak to successful founders on how they are creating this crisis. So what we're doing is we're kind of kind of dripping that through. So we've got, I'm doing quite a few interviews in the next few weeks and uh, then we'll start to drip them out. And then obviously we've got our regular schedule of interviewing really, really successful founders, which I still know will tremendously help you. Our first episode was with Steve McLeod, one of my mentors and coaches who runs a very, very successful business and has dealt a lot with dealing with crisis. It was an incredible episode. I know that you'll get so much value from it. If you haven't, make sure you check it out. Make sure you go to your YouTube channel. We actually recorded that one in person at youtube.com forward slash founder. So now let's talk about today's guest. His name is Tim West, and he's the co-founder of a company called 12 Round Fitness. Now, this is the fastest growing global boxing franchise in the world, and I'm actually a member, and uh, we talk about how to rapidly grow a franchise local-based business. Now, I know that actually some gyms might be closed now, wherever you are around the world, regardless the strategies and the things that Tim talks about when it comes to growing a brick and mortar fitness business is incredible. So if you have a brick and mortar store or if you have any kind of retail business, you're going to get so much from this. He's a really, really strong systems master. So also guys, if you are listening to this and you're thinking to yourself, well, during this time, one thing that would be really, really helpful for me is to get better at my finances. 
that is something that I think is very, very important as an entrepreneur and as a founder. It's something that I personally struggled with in my early days as a founder. That's why we've launched a new course called Finance for Founders. If you'd like to know more, make sure you sign up at founder.com forward slash finance. This is a really, really incredible course and it couldn't come at a better time. And uh, you have been working on it for quite some time. The instructor, Alexa Von Tobel, is incredible. And uh, we've got an early bird special. I think you'd really, really enjoy it. And I think you're going to get a lot of value from it. All right, guys, that's it from me. I hope you're staying safe. I hope your family is okay. I hope you are doing okay. We're going to put out as much content as we can to help and serve you. All right, that's it from me. Now we jump the show. The first question that I ask everyone that comes on is, how did you get your job? Do you know what? This is a question that I get asked a bit. And uh, it's almost just by default because I'm almost unemployable. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, from a traditional sense. So, you know, the way I see the world, the way I see business, the way I see, you know, the building of businesses, it doesn't make me entirely compatible with being employed. So, you know, the best way for me to control that uh, and to do what I love is to uh, own my own businesses and therefore now I've got to build them. Yeah. So um, was 12 Round your first company or what, what is your background? Where did you start? What was your first business? Yeah, look, 12 Round's the most relevant uh, because, because I've been you know, the janitor through to the owner, so to speak, in fitness. So... No, starting out wanting to be a professional athlete, but not having the ability. Um, wanting to be in strength and conditioning uh, because I wanted to be involved in sports. Uh, but paying my way through study with personal training. Yep. Um, and then into gym ownership in franchising and gym operation. Um, and, and then into, you know, franchise development. A few steps along the way with technology. So where, um, what was the first gym that you owned? Can, are you able to share? Like, yeah, franchise? yeah. The, the first uh, franchise gyms that I owned were, were some of the first Jets clubs, the first 24-hour oh. clubs in the country. Yep. So I was working for Good Life at the time. Yep. Um, and, then, and then a friend of mine introduced me to the concept of 24-hour gyms. Yes. Which, of course, I thought would never work at the first pass. Yep. Uh, and then looked at it a little bit more and realised it, it did satisfy a, an issue in the market, a, yes. a customer's need. Um, and so we opened the third uh, or second 24-hour club in the country after the founders. And clubs. how long ago was this? It was 2008. Okay. Great wow. timing as usual, which was October 2008. So the very day that the GFC was announced. Yeah, wow. So what happened next? So we opened three in quick succession. It was really successful from the start. So that's when, you know, really understanding the growth power of franchising. Good Life was a company-owned franchise. Yes. So they had a different group of restraints. You know, they had capital and HR restraints. Yes. But when I saw Jets and the opportunity it gave to, you know, fitness professionals to step up into, into bricks-and-mortar businesses and the power of, of club ownership and operation aligned with investment – and the potential that that has, has for quick growth. You know, I was hooked on that franchising model from yeah. that point. Interesting. So um, you said you opened up three over what period of time? Over about nine months. Wow, okay. Uh, that was pretty fast. Yeah. And then um, how, how did you get the capital to, to launch all three so fast? Well, it was, it was interesting. It was a uh, friends of mine were working away 
Um, and they had capital. Yes. And I had no how. Yes. So that's where that came together. And, and with a, a syndicate investment approach, yes. we were able to get the capital. Yep. Given we had operational backgrounds that were complementary, yes. we were able to roll them out fairly quickly. And that was in Brisbane? In Brisbane, yep. correct. Okay. And then what happened next? Well, I always had a strategy when, you know, when they stopped selling franchise territories in our area, our area being Brisbane, I knew from that point that, that supply and demand would have a positive effect on the exit value. Yes. So I'd always strategize the day that, that, we'd, that Jet stopped selling territories in Brisbane, I put all three on the market. Yeah, wow, interesting. Yeah. And when was that? So that was, that was 2010. Yeah, okay. And so pretty quick, you know, and in, in between that I'd invested some capital into a, a software solution that I thought would help service providers of recurring um, booking businesses yes. like PTs. Yes. Um, you know, where, where they were able to do the things that PTs were bad at. Yep. Take and manage bookings and take payments. And so, you know, and, and charge people for not showing up. Yes. Um, and so I built a platform that enabled PTs initially to, to book clients in in recurring schedules and, yep. and charge them in advance for it. Yep. Like a mind-body software as a service. Yeah, yep. software as a service product. Yep. We called it you know, the what-if of service providers at the time because yep. no one was really doing it except what-if at that point. Yep. Um, you know, and so that was my foray into, into tech and also billing. Yes. So the, the tech and, and uh, infrastructure around billing, the regulation around billing, and also the tech and, and understanding how tech can support scale, you know, which is, which is where I think its primary place is. Interesting. So um, you sold the three jets that you had uh, with, and then you moved into software? Yeah, correct. And, and then yeah, what happened then? What happened and then, that and then moved out of software, ultimately. I'd, the same investors as the gyms. Yes. And when you do that and you lack a technical investor in an entirely technical business, yeah. you know, um, you're really at limitations. So we migrated out of that tech space yep. and, uh, and I started cooking away with the, the model behind the 12-round product. Ah, so how long did you work on the software product? Well, concurrently at the uh, midway through owning the Jets Clubs. Yes. And I was in tech and then we invested in more tech, which was uh, Go One, the fastest growing learning management software in the oh, world. Yeah. yeah, we interviewed the founder. Yeah, so Andrew and Vu, we, yep. they were actually our builders of our first prototype. Ah, oh, there you go. And, and so in that, they introduced us to the concept of Go One and, and we invested in that as seed investors. Ah, and when you say we, that was the original investors that you pulled together Correct. for Jets. Yeah, the ah. same block. Yeah. yeah. So I was an executive, non-executive director of Go One yes. in its first few years. Oh, you were? Yeah. Ah, I see. Yeah. And then, okay, so you're working there, but then you kind of had this idea for 12. Tech, yeah, although yeah. tech would be the answer. Yeah. And then when I realized that there's limitations in non-tech owners of tech businesses. Yes. No tech founders. Yes. I went back into what I know. Ah. which was getting back into bricks and mortar fitness businesses. Interesting. Yeah. So whatever happened to that company? Because, um, you know, one thing we try and do here at Founder is, is kind of, you know, you have an extensive amount of experience, you know, starting and growing and scaling businesses. Um, and it's always incredible and helpful for people to learn from your experiences. Mm. Was there anything you could share that you, you wish you had have known? Because I know 
Like I was literally, I was at a wedding in Byron Bay this weekend and I met a guy and um, he, 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 run, he, he has a similar kind of situation. He has a, a few F45s, yep. franchises. And he said to me, you know what, look, Nathan, um, it's just not the scale that I'm looking for, right? You, you, can, you get capped out, mm. right? You can only fit, you know, let's just say 150, 200 members per club. Um, but then after that, it's just, you're capped out, right? You can't do anything more. Um, so he's working on like a, like a, literally like a software solution uh, that he believes is, is infinitely mm. scalable, right? So it's the same <laughs> kind of thing, searching for yep. more, right? Or how do you yep. build a bigger business that's extremely scalable that you not kind of have these limitations? So what can you learn? Because a lot of people do try and move into building a software company, it's really difficult, or they try and move into a brick and mortar and it's really difficult, mm. or e-commerce, and you think because you've done it once or you've had some success that sometimes you get tricked. Yeah. So I'd love to hear what experiences do you have with that, you know, moving and transitioning and, and how did it end up going? Do you still, is that company still around yeah. or? Okay, so, so a few things. There's, there's definitely really valuable lessons in it. And in the tech building, you, you really have to apply very strictly an, an agile development methodology. And I'm, I'm sure you're well familiar with that, but you, know, you really need to validate the, the customer and the customer needs prior to spending the money on building the infrastructure. Yeah. One of the really big issues we faced was we didn't stick tightly to a scope of works and scope creep kills most projects. Mm-hmm. You ask an architect, you know, they quote on a project and the, the owner says, just move that door a little bit there or we'd like the deck a little bit longer or bigger. Well, tech projects have that, but it's really easy to spend money quickly. Mm-hmm. And you don't even understand the implications of the changes you're making on the quote or on the scope of works. Yeah. Um, and, and that's where a tech co-founder, if it's going to be serious tech, at serious scale, you know, above the template platforms, you know, the WordPress websites or, or yeah, e-commerce. Yeah, you know, Shopify. If it's going to be bigger than yeah. that, yeah. What, custom. You, you, what you need to do is really look at what is the minimum viable product required to validate the customer? You know, one of my favorite quotes is, you know, no business plan survives contact with the first customer. Mm. Now, Mike Tyson puts it in a boxing context. Everyone's got a plan until I punch him in the face, you know. And, and the ultimate scenario is that until you reach that first customer, what's in your head is the perfect solution is just that in your head mm. um, until you validate that with customers. So we cause big issues with our business by... Now, building a Ferrari to take the kids to school. We, we built an infinitely scalable, completely you know, restful APIs, proper scale infrastructure, enterprise level security and scale. And we didn't have a single customer. And what that meant was the cost in delaying that launch really chewed up the capital required to acquire customers at the other end that we had validated. Yep. So, and then... We struggled to find investment because we didn't have a tech founder, a tech co-founder. Mm. So for your friend, my advice would be to find a really seriously capable tech co-founder that has a cultural fit, a shared set of beliefs and a shared set of values, but isn't you uh, and, and applies some different knowledge. Uh, and that way you have a chance to build things lean enough to get to the stage of validating customers and scale after that yeah interesting so 
What happened to that product? Is it still around or no, shutting no, it down? No, the product's not around. Um, I think that it still is an applicable product now. Yeah. I actually think it would work still. Uh, and I think it was a really solid business plan. But the fact that we used all of our capital before we started acquiring customers and we couldn't go and find money because we didn't have the criteria of a tech founder. I remember sitting down with Blackbird VC yep. when they first launched and, uh, and Nikki was a friend of, of Cannon Brooks and um, he just said, first criteria, you've got a scalable tech business. We believe in the business case. So why is there no tech founder sitting at the table with us? And said, well, because it, we, we knew the problem. We didn't necessarily know how to build the solution. And he said, well, I can't invest on the basis of that. And then go and find a tech founder and come back to us. By then we'd burnt through the capital and didn't have the money to keep the business going. Yeah. And so that's probably, you know, on two sides. It's a, it's a great and really valid experience. Now it filled in my gaps in payments, which for gyms mm. are recurring payment businesses. Yeah. Now international payments is one of the biggest issues with international growth of a gym franchise. Really? But that's actually my backyard now. That's something that I understand as well as a fintech founder. Yeah. You know, so it, it, through that experience, it really turned into a huge asset because not only do I understand the mechanisms of scale for tech, but I also understand the mechanisms for scale for, for bricks and mortar. Mm. You know, and so therefore they're complementary when you look at moving into international markets where that, that inability or, or lack of knowledge would mean that you just simply can't do it without selling a lot of capital to acquire that or equity to acquire that knowledge. Interesting. So um, you shut that product down in the end. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. um, it didn't work. But to your benefit, you took a lot of lessons away that you put into 12 round. When did you start conceiving? When did you? How long did it take you to conceive uh, 12 round and and yeah, can you give us context what 12 round is for everyone watching and listening? Yeah. And, and when did you launch it? So how long did it start? Like how long did it take to, to actually mm. get it up and running? And- so, so at the very start of 2014, yep. um, I was out of my non-compete with Jets. Yep. Um, I, I was at the final stages of, of the product that we built, the software product. Yep. And I really needed to get back into my comfort zone. Yep. Um, you know, I had the capital still to do that. Yep. And so I started to think, well, what were the things you loved about fitness? And what were your things that you, you know, that, that, that made you successful in PT or, or in gym ownership? And I thought, let's embody that. And then what are the issues that, that fitness businesses face? So let's avoid those, mm. you know. Let's, you know, incorporate all the good things and try and avoid as many of the bad things. Yeah. You know, my time with Good Life and PT, one of the big issues with the fitness products or the group fitness stuff was, was timetables, mm. you know, um, and you've been a member so you understand yeah. now this. And so over 80% of complaints across the counter at a big box gym, a good life of fitness first, regarding group fitness, uh, regarding the timetable. So I knew that boutique fitness, small group training was on the move. Yep. It was huge in the States. It was exploding. Yes. I had 42% growth in one calendar year. Yep. But it seemed to me to embody the issue Mm. of timetables. So first of all, that was the problem I'd set myself to to answer and to solve. 
And the second part is that I felt that exercise was penance or punishment for most people. Mm. Yeah. And I thought, well, the only time that it doesn't feel like that is when you're playing sports. So I tried to break down that part. Yeah. So you've got sports. Why do sports feel different to exercise? Why does going for a surf feel different to going swimming laps? Or playing a game of touch football feel different to running laps or a treadmill? And the answer was skill. So it's team, team building and skill. Now, yes. group fitness has the team element yes. innate in its nature, but it doesn't always have the skill building element. Mm. And the skill building is what distracts you from the exercise. Right? So if you can embed a skill where you can work towards mastery, you kind of forget that you're actually meant to be focused on the calories or meant to be focused on the weight loss for that period. And so that means that you know, you've got the next piece, which is engagement over a long period of time. So, so you know, working on that, discarding the things that I thought were going to be an issue, yes. enhancing the things that I loved about sports, yes. meant that I wanted to build a group fitness product that avoided the, the pitfalls of time, so it was convenient, that would drive adherence, and then I would also focus on the skill development. Mm. And I had a background in boxing. Yeah. Very low level, more of a hobby. Yes. Uh, but I loved it. Yeah. Um, I just didn't necessarily like getting punched in the head all the time. And so, you know, it was a situation where I thought boxing in all of my S&C, strength and conditioning background, is used in all sports. Yep. It's not a preseason for a league team or a union team or an AFL team or a netball team or swimmers where they don't use boxing for conditioning. Yep. So that made sense. Very low skill level to start, but a lifelong of, of skill acquisition. Yeah. So that meant a long engagement cycle yes. for members. And then I thought, all right, well, my S&C background delivers on the results piece. Yes. And if I use boxing, it's got an inbuilt mechanism for managing the class timetable fluently, mm. which was round. Yeah. So I thought, well, maybe that solves that thing I was trying to avoid. So that kind of brings together, you know, an exercise mode that felt like team sports. Yep. Gave results to members and was fun and convenient. And, and that's really the kernel of it. When that all came together, I started to, using Steve Blank's quote of no business plan uh, survives first contact with a customer. Yep. Um, we then just set out to bring as many fitness friends as I could together and, and run you know, different programs over a 12 round, which is a championship bout. See, that was yeah. your MVP. Yeah, it was my MVP yep. in a big box gym in between treadmills yep. with 24 friends. Yeah, wow. And, and a program written on whiteboards. Wow. You know, and so that was it. That was what investors invested in. See, yeah. and that was in 2014. At the start of 2014, about March. Because um, you, you strike me as someone that's, like, because what I, I, I'm a member, but I see the business side of it. I think the model is is very, very strong. I think it's very, very smart, and I think it it's playing on like there are some really strong trends as well. Like you know, I, yep. we have an office in New York, and I go there, and yep. and there's these kind of like cool kind of funky, funky kind of Orange Theory type boxing yep. style things. Yep. I don't even know what they're called, yep. but 
like it, it is a trend like boxing is very yeah. cool now yep um so i think you're, you're obviously a strong strategic thinker how long did it take for you to work that out i'm just curious mm-hmm. like sitting there thinking about it because it's, it's really well thought out okay so so the other thing was in order to engage people there has to be an element element of emotion yep and I remembered back to childhood of, of watching the Rocky movies. Yep. And, you know, Rocky always goes through a period in every movie where he doesn't know what he's fighting for, doesn't know if he wants to fight. Some dramatic event happens and he gets his head into gear and then the training montage, you know, the classic music starts. Yeah, yeah. And he starts doing all that, hitting sides of beef, running up mountains, doing all that varied stuff. So that little bit of a motive was what I needed to really be the catalyst. I didn't have that originally. I knew that I liked that, but I didn't know how we make that manifest a product with that spirit and with that that energy, that emotion. Um, And so, you know, from the very start where the, the idea was conceived in March 2014, it took me till October to, and you mentioned strategy, and my past experience slowly killing a product over yeah. an agonising number of years, um, I decided that I was going to put my prototype and I fully briefed the investors, yep. I'm going to fail this as fast as I can or it's going to survive the trial. So I profiled Brisbane and it came up with two areas yep. that had the most representation of fitness providers. Yep. So it had hot yoga, it had normal yoga, it had hot Pilates, it had normal Pilates. It had CrossFit gyms, it had three different 24-hour gyms, it had a fitness first, it had group fitness providers everywhere, boot camps in the park, even a, um, even a community gym. And I thought that's where I'm going to put it and that was Tawong in Brisbane. Yep. So then I spent that time trying to find a location in Tawong. Yes. In that isolated area. Yep because I wanted to fail it as quickly as possible. Yeah, really stress test. Really stress test. The strategy, test. The, the model, the offering, the product, everything. Everything, because it's no good if you're going to scale a product to put it in an area that has to avoid competition to win. Mm. So, yes, there's blue oceans. We all understand that concept. But there's also red oceans. And, and it's kind of altruistic to pretend that my market's not going to come by cannibalising existing providers. Mm. It's unrealistic. And, and so I needed to prove that I could effectively target existing providers' products. And uh, you mentioned F45, there's an F45 there as well. So yep. you know, it really needed to do that. And then, then I wanted to you know, have a strategy where actually we looked for areas that had great representation and demonstrated spend on fitness. Yes. Because inevitably, as areas develop, fitness providers go there. So we won't always be looking over our shoulder. And so, you know, it demonstrated that incredibly quickly because of the, at the start, we were still looking, which is the primary motivator for members to come in. We still thought, is it equally boxing and um, and no start times? Is it equally, you know, these things? No, but no start times is the thing that once you experience, you can't go back to normal bookings, yeah. you know, and, and, and so it almost ruins you yeah. for every other fitness mode, yeah. you know, and so that was the one we sort of went, right, that's actually really aggressive uh, in terms of acquiring customers because it, it not only creates a point of difference for those that need the shiny new thing, mm. 
but it kind of ruins you yeah. for going back to, to a restrictive version yeah, of I group agree. fitness. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, I, as a member, a new member, um, I, that was the, one of the best things for me. Mm. Yeah. So, yeah, you, you probably, yeah, you're like music to your ears. You probably hear it all the time, right? Yeah, because yeah, you hypothesize that. We are lucky that we do hear that all the time. Otherwise, we would be telling you a different story. So... Um, so you, so you stress tested the MVP version. Um, how long did that take for you to, to really know that the model was ready for scale and then start putting, you know, setting up the franchise model? Yeah, that, that's a really good timeline of events because you can validate the customer, but businesses are made up of fixed and variable costs. And the two drivers of that are normally the size of the place that you need um, or the size of the physical tenancy in bricks and mortar. Yep. So your variable costs, you can fluctuate. Being an owner-operator, you can tweak the staff costs. You can tweak all of those things, but you can't change the location. Yeah. Um, so, and I didn't know what was the most efficient size to, to generate revenue. Um, and so the next test that I had to do as quickly as possible was to test the size. So the first one was 240 square metres in Tuong, which is fairly big for the the boutique fitness market. Yes. The second one was 115. Yep. Now, a franchisee, potential franchisee, actually came to me as a long-term friend and said, I know you're not ready to franchise, but I want one of these. Yep. And I want it closer to home. He lived in Paddington. Yeah. And so Milton's next door. And uh, I said, mate, I can't let you take that lease because I don't even know if it's going to fit. And so I said, look, I'll take that lease. So you'll have the gym close to you, but I'll operate it and I'll own it. And so tested that. And even up until the very last day, I was terrified it wasn't going to work. But I needed to bookend the sizes. Of course it's going to work in a bigger space. Maybe not economically, but certainly from a practical sense. But I didn't know how small it could go. Yeah. And when you have aspirations of going into Southeast Asia and really expensive real estate, say in New York or LA, yeah. you have to know just how economical you can be. Yeah. And we, that's a big sell you know, point to like franchisees as well, right? Of course. Like, it's really big. Yeah, yeah. But you can't say that unless you've tested it. Mm. You know, because otherwise you've got franchise agreements going out there and leases being signed and the, the franchisee's holding the baby. So I wanted to validate that. Um, so then we sort of worked in from that. It is a little bit tight. So the minimum is now 130 square metres yep. just to give that bit of overflow. Yep. Um, but, you know, no shortage of sites in that bottom range because they're just so damn efficient, you know. And, uh, and I would argue that, that we are probably the highest yielding per square metre franchise in the world. Yeah, wow, uh, that's given a big that call, man. Given the 115 square metre footprint. Yep in boutique fitness, you know, um, because we generate a lot of activity within that small amount of space, Mm. you know, do 300 members at Milton, you know, and, and that's, you know, more than 120 sessions a day, you know, for members. Interesting. So, um, how long did it take you? So like in terms of timeline, was it about a year and a half before you could actually start getting franchisees and, 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 Mm. you know, 
even even the documentation and working oh, out the systems and all that's like that that must take ages right yeah, it takes ages i was really lucky that having been a franchisee yeah i had a head start on the terms and conditions side of that yep because that's a, a really complex minefield yeah what do people need to know if someone was looking watching this right now listening what are some key things or things to avoid when mm. you say complex? Yeah, one of the things is if you can't, if, if it's not clear from what the franchisee is telling you of the intentions of the franchise, look at the outcome of the clause and work your way back to find the intention. Yep. Uh, and what I'm talking about there is royalties. Yep. So as an example, the intentions of a fixed fee royalty must be to get as many locations as possible. Mm. Yeah, must be because there's no other way to grow that revenue. Yeah. So I look for things like, and so I wrote this in from day one, a percentage of revenue royalty mm. because then I'm equally invested in growing your revenue. Yeah. And as a franchisee, that's the biggest doubt that you have, the level of investment in your success, right? So, so straight away I wanted to throw that flag up and say, if you don't make any money, we won't make any money, but we'll still have to service you. Um, and that was a really important piece. But, you know, and so to go back, you know, we, we waited um, until March 2016 yep. was the timeline. So it was effectively two years of testing, yep. of launch and testing. Yep. Yeah. And, and during that time period, um, you weren't just testing the offering, you were testing like the operation, the systems, the yep. even even your lead offer, I think, is is genius. You know, your your twenty eight day challenge, um, but you want people to form a habit, and then um, if you do form that habit, then you get uh, you know a, a there's a light at the end of the tunnel. Yep. You get the heart rate monitor, which I didn't get. Yeah, I, I didn't get it. I didn't. It was hard for me, but yeah, I was like. Yeah, but like I thought it was so genius because mm. like people can learn that. Like I was even thinking like literally I was thinking like because I don't know how much you know about our business, but we sell other products, right? Like yeah. obviously we're a media company, but we sell online courses and magazines and books. And I was thinking, okay, well, if someone purchases a course from us mm-hmm. um, and we know that we want to make sure they finish that course because it's in their best interest and it's our best interest and we have, you know, these really awesome refund, you know, no questions asked guarantees, a lot of the time, like it's in our best interest, we know it's an incredible product. So we want to get people to go through it. So what what kind of like, you know, thing that can we put out to incentivize people mm. to actually go through the course? And mm. I thought that was just such a, you know, it was so smart. And Thank I you. think it was, yeah, like, Where'd you learn that? Well, well, it was a, an interesting mix of, of psychology and commercial sense, right? Yeah. So, and I'd be you know, lying if I said this was totally my idea. Yeah, of course. Well. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, the marketing team and, and the franchisees, high performers network. Yep. And everyone worked through this. But we tried to, again, just like creating a business model, think about what are the, the things that we want to avoid, the behaviors that we don't want to encourage and influence. Yep. And what are the ones we want to enhance, right? So anytime that you give something away, you are making the assumption that price is the issue, mm. where it's never the issue. It's always value, right? But we, if you don't know what the product is, and boxing has some misconceptions, yeah. particularly you know, our version of conditioning for boxing as opposed to sparring, there's misconceptions still. So the idea was 
we were getting 85 to 90% conversion off free trials because the only thing that people were still scared of was was the product what they thought it was or was they going were they going to end up boxing mm. so we realized that we needed to get people into the door with the lowest possible barrier to entry but we couldn't erode the value because just dropping your price you know it it, it doesn't it doesn't give people confidence that you believe in the value of your product. Yeah? Mm. So we were looking at how do we get people in? We know that 28 days is a routine building period and the behaviour we want to encourage is three visits a week. Right? And we know that the behaviour is when you first buy, that's when you're most motivated. So we implemented the system where each week you get a call from the staff in that first four weeks to, to make sure you're on track. And then at the end of that, we wanted to give people a prize that used technology to motivate because that's more scalable. Yeah. And that was where the heart rate monitor, the MyZone heart rate monitor came in. So we were simultaneously trying to get more people to try the product, but over a period that was going to validate them with the product, it was going to build a routine they get to build relationships with the member, with the other members and, and the staff. Um, and then we're using this engagement product like wearable tech um, to then enhance that ongoing. So the only other piece was that, that people didn't necessarily own boxing gloves. I yep. know you did, but not, not everyone does. And so in some cases that's offered with gloves as well because we can't do the guarantee because you can't, you know, yeah. we can't give you anything back. You know, it's time. So... All he said is, look, at the end of the time, if you, if at any time during this 28 days, it's not for you, you can keep the gloves and, and we're really grateful that you came in and gave us a go. Mm. You know, it's okay. It's not for everyone. But given our conversion of free trials was so high na- nationally, I'm pretty confident that if they tried it, they were going to stay. Mm. And Netflix had already pioneered the, you know, opt out option. Yeah. Now it's actually... It's actually a blessing for members because they get decision fatigue. Mm. I don't want to have to physically do something to keep going. I just want to keep going. Yeah. You know, so that opt-out mechanism at the end. So removing barriers for entry over an intentional period of time that built routines, really targeted, you know, following up to make sure that routine's set. And then if they're getting value, then as long as we're exceeding their expectations then there's no reason that a high percentage of them wouldn't convert. Yeah, no, it's really smart. So I'm curious, like you guys are growing really, really fast now. Um, how are you uh, getting, you know, how, how are you scaling uh, like this franchise model? How, mm. you, how do you acquire so many, you know, so much interest? Well, we're really lucky at this stage. Um, majority of the sales are advocacy based. So one of the main um, barometers for whether you're exceeding members' expectation or meeting their expectations is how hard they'll advocate for you. So we know the Net Promoter Score. If you're investing in tech, one of the key numbers you want to know is what's your Net Promoter Score. Mm. And how, how, what percentage of your current members are so happy with your product that they will actively advocate for you? Mm. So we made a... a you know, a, a decision that majority of our growth, the majority should be advocacy based. Yep. And that is members, 
telling their friends, members investing, staff telling their friends or staff investing, existing franchisees helping us to recruit new franchisees. And that's why there's a cluster effect. So when we open a club in a new territory, they very, very quickly cluster because they're all around that sphere of influence. But that's finite, just just like referrals in a gym driving gym membership sales. Yes. That might be enough in the long run to manage attrition, to get you off the start and then manage attrition. But it's not enough to accelerate growth in the true sense of scale, the hockey stick that everyone that does startups talks about. So that is currently the place we're investing the most amount of time and money. Yep. Is, is answering the question of, of, okay, well, how do we open up new markets? How do we get New Zealand off the ground, Singapore off the ground, the UK and US off the ground? You can't just rely on advocacy. So you need some sense of, of cost of acquisition of customers, sales process on a franchise level as well as a, a franchisee level. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. So um, are you guys just in Australia now? You're international too? We opened our first club in New Zealand. Yep. Uh, we have a franchisee opening at the end of this year in Singapore. Yep. And I hope we sign off this week on a site in Twickenham in London. Oh, wow. And so, you know, and, and potentially um, Orange County in the US if we find the right franchisees. Interesting. Yeah. And so those international franchisees, is that inbound or that's uh, you know, paid acquisition or, or what is that? At the moment, it's still inbound. It's yep. still advocacy yep um but it won't be when we go to populate those areas in clusters yep okay um, now that we we know a lot more about what our customer is and who they are yes and when i say customer i mean customer for each stakeholder yep. for a franchisee we're spending a lot of time and money in analyzing who their customers are yes and where do those lookalike audiences exist and rather than saying to a franchisee here's a map of melbourne and and you pick the area and because you live there, yes. we're saying here are the best areas that you should invest in. Ah. And so our strategy for international is seed populate with the first yes, and then profile the community with the knowledge that we have of Australian consumers yes, and then actually nominate the best 10 sites around Twickenham as an example ah. and not let them set them up in areas that aren't the most likely to succeed. Yeah, interesting. Because a lot, like, I don't know much about this space because I've never looked at, 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 you know, buying a franchise. But usually, is it, is it how it happens? Is I like this brand, I want to open up my own, and I get to choose the location. It is. Yeah. Okay. And 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 more often than not, it's where you live. Interesting. So you guys are going. You you find you know the you know the so you get inbound and you find the one right yep. just to to start off, yep. and then you're going to analyze that area and you're going to create this cluster all around so then yeah yep. it kind of spreads and, and cherry pick not the emotional preferences of the franchisee yes but the areas that profile as the most likely to succeed yep so what we know about the analysis is that we can generate an, an estimate of yes. performance and that the operator will influence it 40 percent down or 40 percent up Yep. In performance. Yep. Wow, interesting. Right. And so, but we need to pick the ones that have the highest um, estimated performance. Yep. Uh, and that comes from data. Yep. And data is king in franchising. I mean, the old way to do it is to let them choose the suburb they live in. Yep. The new way to do it is to analyze them and give them some direction 
because you need to be the authority and the expert, even when it's an emotional decision. Interesting. So um, when it comes to uh, the, the model, are you able to talk numbers around like, you know, you said you guys don't do a, f- a fixed fee, you mm-hmm. do a percentage of revenue. Are you able to share kind of what, what that model looks like? Yeah, someone, yeah? of course, of yeah. course. Um, and this is something that's moved significantly over the life because yep. part of the validation model is to make an assumption about price point. Yep. Now that will work. And then to continually flex that against the number of average members that franchisees are able to acquire. Yes. The break-even numbers that you're targeting. And and so you go over this constant state of flux and franchisees that come in at the start bear witness to this flux. Yes. Those that come in later, you know, now in our third year, they're getting the benefit of the accumulative knowledge. Mm. So we have to cohort them. Yep. We have to put them in buckets. Yep. A club that launches now breaks even based on our approval of their lease, yes. had 120 members. Yeah. Okay. Now, our average pre-sale is 90 members. Yeah, wow. With okay. a minimum pre-sale of 70 or you can't open. Wow. Right? So you, let, you make them test. Yeah. yeah. And so we handhold that entire pre-sale period because you will have to keep pushing your date of opening back until you get to 70. Yeah. And you've got a playbook for how to do the pre-sale. Yeah, and it's prescriptive. Yeah. This is one part of time where it's, one part in their journey where it's literally day-to-day task-driven. Yep. You know, and so dedicated staff that are with you for that whole period. Yep. And so, you know, so, so we know from the formulation and the results what we can yield out of that. So the 120-member break-even is our criteria in our modelling as to whether you can sign that lease or not. Yep. Because if we wouldn't sign the lease, you can't sign the lease. No, and because you can't move the location as easily as you can change the operator. And so, you know, a club that opens at 120 yep. then gets 30 to 50% growth of that membership base in the first six months. Yep. Yeah? And so you can see at a, at a capacity of 250, 270, yep. maybe 300, you know, in, in depending on the maturity because obviously people visit a lot more when they start. Yep. So a more mature club can have a higher capacity because yep. people have dropped into their natural rhythm a little yes. bit more. Um, but if we look at that, you can understand how achievable, you know, those numbers are. Um, and that's, the, that's the, the model as a new franchisee signing up today will see it. Yep. Okay, interesting. Yeah. And um, when it comes to, I guess, the marketing side of things, mm-hmm. do you guys charge a marketing fee or do you help? No, we incorporate that. It's oh, okay. all incorporated into the single fee. Yep. And, and so w- we see our job in... As two. There's two fundamental systems when you're open. Yeah. And that is to keep members and to get members. All right? So in keeping members, you've got to exceed their expectations in product delivery environment and supporting them in their journey. All right? Because as we all know, it's cheaper to keep members than to get new members. Yeah. You know, and, and in, in getting members... You've got to tell the story and you've got to close the sale. It's that simple. Um, but in order to give them the material and the, the, the system and the tactics and the strategy to close the sale, like the 28-day results pack, you, you've actually got to give them a compelling narrative, story and content that is of a level which you would expect if you're investing 
in a significant franchise. It can't be, you know, clip art on a poster. It's got to be professionally sought content, curated videos, curated content that is consistent with the narrative. And our narrative is what are you fighting for? Yep. Because that ties into the emotion of you're there for a reason, yep. you know, and everyone's got one. And so, you know, our content is that. Then our strategy is the low barrier to entry offer. Yep. Right? And then our tool to keep them is exceed expectations. That's it. It's, it's, it's a pretty straightforward formula, yeah. you know. You just got to execute. And um, look, we have to work towards wrapping up, but a um, couple last questions. One, I think another thing you guys did very smartly and I'm sure strategically is getting an ambassador for the brand, mm. which is Danny Green and, mm. and associating, um, you know, like he, he, you see him yeah. like on the screen and, you know, he, he, he's, he's you know, customising the workouts and all that side yeah. of things. I think that's really smart from a, a trust building standpoint because he's a well-known boxer. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also aligning with his brand uh, uh, elevates you guys as yeah. yeah. So so that was the first thing. Um, I'd love to hear like do you yeah. think people should be doing that in, in when they're trying to take on any industry aligning it's, with an ambassador. Yeah, it's it's not always as easy. Yeah. Um, given the cost implications. Yep. I was very fortunate that that Danny had a mutual circle of friends. Yep. Um, and I was able to do some work with him yep. to get to know him in launching some of his concepts. Yep. Um. And, and when I pitched the idea, he was authentically excited because it was the training that he did. Yeah. And from a sports science background, I knew that. Yeah. But I needed him to validate that. Yeah. It's like singer-songwriters. Critical acclaim is more important than the customer's acclaim or the, or the fans. Mm. You know, because it has to come from someone who's lived and embodied that. Yes. And if they can honestly say, this is like the training that I used to do, and that's where you get the trust. Yep. But they have to be genuine. Yep. And he was. Yep. And, so, and, and his personality isn't, is uncompromising. So it wouldn't be any other way. Yep. Love yeah, love that. I think that was very smart. Um, so you think if you can do it, definitely, 110%? If you're confident that they align with yep. your values yep. okay. and your culture. And then talk to me around kind of company-owned. Do you have mm-hmm. any company-owned? Can you share that? No, we've got none. But Except no. for the ones that I invested in yep. originally, um, yep. which aren't company owned, they're, yep. they're privately owned. Yep. Um, so there are none. Yep. And uh, from time to time, we've owned clubs. Yes. Um, as we've reshuffled them, as we've taken them over, and then and then had high performers take them off us. Yep. Um, you know, but but we all, as an executive group, own clubs. So my C- the CEO Michael owns. A club. Yep. The COO, Jonah, owns a club. The GM owns two clubs. I own one and a share in another club. So decisions we're making yep. are affecting us and that's critical. Yeah, because you know? that's how you test for the test. And, yeah. yeah, and you're selfishly making decisions in favour of franchisees <laughs> yeah. as well. Yeah. <laughs> and that's critical because if you don't have empathy, just like a good trainer has empathy for members, a good franchisor should have empathy for franchisees. Mm. and not rule from afar and make arbitrary decisions that affect other people and not them. Interesting. Okay, so um, last question. Uh, What's next Mm -hmm. um, and what's exciting for you? Um, And, yeah, any parting words of wisdom that you'd like to share? Well, what's next for us is, is using technology, so, again, leveraging my skills, 
even though it didn't pay off at the time, leveraging that experience to bring technology to bear. And, and to bear, I mean in areas, not for the sake of ticking the technology box, but for the sake of scale, you know, for the sake of quality assurance, right? They're where I think that they can generally, uh, genuinely improve the experience of the customer and the franchisee. Uh, so we've got customer-facing technology being released uh, in November, December, be available at the start of next year. And we've got a suite of technology making the manager and the franchisee's job easier mm. and more rewarding. And Simplify Amplify has been the theme of this year. And I can honestly say that by the end of the year, we'll be a long way towards meeting those objectives. Amazing. Yeah. And uh, any parting words? Where's the best place people can find out more about 12 Round or yourself or any whiz- words of wisdom you want to share? Well, I think that uh, the first one, um, 12rnd.com.au is the best place to go to find co- information about the franchise. Obviously, I'm available on LinkedIn yep. uh, or by phone and email <laughs> as well. Hopefully not too much phone. Yep. Um, and, and the final piece I think would be Two things, you know, Leonardo da Vinci's simplicity is the ultimate sophistication. It's the most difficult thing to get in a business model, simplicity, and and hands up, I'm not there yet, we're not there yet, but we work towards it every single day. We think about what we can subtract, not what we can add. Mm, Love that. And the other, you know, is, is to not avoid the problems because the problems are the reason you have a job and a role. So a quote from a, a, one of my long-term clients and friends was that uh, be grateful for your problems because if they didn't exist, someone with less ability would have your job. Mm. And I think, Frank, you know, from a, a point of view of business owners, we seem to think it's avoiding problems that makes our job enjoyable, but it's actually solving them that adds value. Yeah, putting out yeah. those fires. Yeah, exactly. Awesome. Well, look, thanks so much for taking the time, Tim. And, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's been a great conversation. Cheers. Thank you. Hey, guys, I hope you enjoyed this interview. As you might already know, our mission at Founder is to help tens of millions of people every single week with our content either start or grow their business, which is exactly why we're partnering with world-class founders such as Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills such as negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free exclusive trainings, please go to founder.com forward slash free. These are 100%. We go super in depth on teaching a particular topic, and I know that you're going to love them if you enjoy this podcast. So just go to founder.com forward slash free. All right, guys, I'll see you in the next episode.